Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. It's Revelation chapter 1. If you've got a, got a Bible, which hopefully if you're a Christian you do, and it's even better if you've brought it to church, um, open it up to Revelation chapter 1. It will be behind me on the screen. And we're just going to look at uh, the first 19 verses, which I'm going to read to you, and then we're going to pray. And then, well, I've already prayed. We'll just crack on with the sermon. So, so the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those, even those who have pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, the brother, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned to see round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the seven golden lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, like a Son of Man, sorry, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze, like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last I am the living one. I was dead. And look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Father, bless us now as we look at those verses together for just a short time uh, in this service. Lord, may we hear your voice. And Lord, may uh, the words we hear, Father, be blessed by you. And Lord, may we receive them, Lord, as you want them to be received. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're finishing our series on the encountering the risen Christ. So this is uh, week six, um, and we've, done, we've covered quite a few different uh, moments where disciples of Jesus have encountered Christ uh, after his resurrection. The first three were his 12 disciples, or his 11 disciples at that point, uh, when they met him in the flesh. And then these last three with Stephen, Paul, and now John uh, meeting Jesus uh, not in the flesh, as it were, but still a post-resurrection uh, encounter. And this is perhaps the most dramatic of all the encounters we've seen over the last six weeks. Uh, it's the most incredible and perhaps from the most unexpected place. Although if you've been a Christian for more than 10 minutes, you'll know that God often meets us in prison uh, rather than he does on the beach on holiday. Um, because it's in those times where we stand for him that we meet him and most dramatically. So today we are encountering Christ on the island of Patmos and each week we've had a word that's accompanied our talk and today's word is unsurprisingly Revelation. Um, so let's just say a few comments about the book of Revelation or the letter of Revelation. You may have, uh, my first question is, have you ever read it? You don't need to put your hand up. But I wonder, are you the kind of Christian uh, that stays in the four gospels, possibly acts um, and then doesn't really venture too far towards Revelation. You might do Ephesians maybe or something or Philippians because that's quite nice. You either go back the other direction and uh, maybe, maybe do Genesis but kind of skip out the rest, particularly Numbers. Uh, and you stay in Psalms maybe and Proverbs but you've never read Song of Songs because um, it's far too, uh, you know, uh, for our Western sensibilities. Are you that Christian that stays where it's comfortable in God's word? Or do you, do you diet and feast on every one of God's words? Because it's all the inspired word of God, even the bits you find troubling or you don't understand. And it's all there for your nourishment spiritually. If you've ever read Revelation, I wonder what you thought of it. Have you YouTubed it and found yourself thinking all sorts of weird and unusual things about who various characters almost certainly are? And then five years go and they replace them with another person and another person, if you know what I'm talking about. I remember when I first read the book of Revelation, when I was 11 years old, I first become a Christian. I had no church upbringing as a child. And so suddenly I was handed this book, um, the, first, the, the second half of it by Gideon's at school. And then I had a whole Bible um, shortly before or after my baptism. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. And, uh, and I remember someone saying to me, you should read the book of Revelation. I don't think I've ever been more amazed or terrified at anything in my entire life because it really is the most terrifyingly amazing book in all of the Bible. It blew my mind as a Christian because it confronted me with parts of the Christian story I just had never come across before. The end of the world the return of Jesus Christ with power and might. It's got this imagery of beasts and, and, and idols that people fall down to, mark of the beast and 666 and various things like that. It talks of the end of all things and the coming kingdom of God. And it blew my mind as a young person. I remember having some very vivid and unsettling dreams at times. The imagining what that final moment might be like when God rolls everything away comes back, judges the living and the dead to see who has chosen his son as the only way, the only truth, and the only way of salvation. When God comes to conquer the evil in this world, the darkness, and those that have opposed him, it is a difficult book to get your head around. What makes it even more complicated is that on one level we say, oh, it's an apocalyptic writing, or it's a, like a prophecy, like revelation. It's also a letter. It's also history. It makes it a very difficult book to read. 
I want to read you a quote about the book of Revelation that I read this week. This person said, without doubt, Revelation is the most intriguing and fascinating of New Testament books. As we turn its pages, a cascade of images, some thrilling, some frightening, all gripping, come tumbling forth, a bewildering kaleidoscope of color, number, and shape. Over the years, it has inspired enormous range of art and initiated some of the most extraordinary and powerful theological ideas. Its influence for good or ill is disproportionate to its place in the fringes of the biblical canon. As literature, it is perhaps the most complex and sophisticated piece of writing the world has ever seen. As theology, it has been the inspiration of a wide range of ideologies and fundament, from fundamentalist to libertarian. Through it all, it has been a source of strength for millions of believers as an assurance that the Almighty reigns. And that last phrase is what you should take away from the book of Revelation, that the Almighty reigns. So Revelation is both challenging and notoriously difficult to understand. For example, uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but um, I wonder if you've worked out who the Antichrist is by now. Of course you haven't. Uh, I wonder if you've worked out who Babylon is in the book of Revelation. Was it uh, first century Rome or is it some other uh, nation or people group or, or theology or philosophy? What view of the millennial reign of Christ do you take? If you've never heard what I'm talking about, don't worry. Uh, some will find this funny. Are you a, classic, uh, are you a classically pre-millennialist? Are you a pre-tribulation pre-millennialist? Are you a post-millennialist? Are you an amillennialist? I really want to make the same joke I always make. I'll make it anyway because you would have forgotten. I'm a pan-millennialist, which means it'll pan out in the end. And that's only funny if you've never read Revelation. That's just not a very funny joke, but never mind. Um, is the, what about the rapture? Lots of Christians get very excited about this thing called the rapture. Is that a thing? Lots of things to make your mind up on. Um, is Revelation dealing with the past, as in like the first century? Is it dealing with our present? Or is it dealing with the future? Or is it dealing perhaps with all three? So having teed that up, I'm not answering any of those questions, and I'm staying in chapter one with John's encounter with Jesus. So let's do that. Uh, good. <laughs> um, so let's start. Just three things for this morning. The first is that the backstory. He's on a focus on his encounter with Jesus, because going back to chapter one, it was the most amazing encounter. His vision of Jesus is phenomenal. Um, to have had that vision of Jesus would be nothing short of life-changing, wouldn't it? But let's start in verses nine to eleven. This is the sort of context. He writes, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. John, uh, and there's some debate as to which John this is, by the way, on the island of Patmos, but the point is, it's our brother in Christ, John, who loved Jesus like we do. He was on the island of Patmos. Where is Patmos? It's in the Aegean Sea. It's uh, 40 miles from the mainland and 24 miles across. And it was the place where political prisoners were sent to be exiled. And so we know straight away that this is a letter written from a place of trial and suffering and persecution. And so all Christians that are facing trials and suffering and persecution should read the book of Revelation because it tells us the almighty reigns. Verse nine hints that times are tough 
for Christians. I'm your partner in that patient endurance for Jesus. John has clearly fallen foul to someone for speaking up and holding to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way of salvation. He's clearly been sold out for Jesus Christ, devoted and dedicated to him, and he is now paying the price on the island of Patmos. Verse 10 is really important. We read that um, he's still dedicated to God. He is um, on the day of the Lord, Sunday, the first day of the week. Um, There he is, worshipping Jesus. He's praying to God. He is in a time of uh, quiet time, if you like, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus speaks to him. This is a really important point because, note, he's in prison, essentially. He's on a prison island, and yet his heart still worships Jesus. I wonder how many of us, when we've taken a stand for our faith, maybe we've taken an ethical stand, or we've decided to speak up and say to someone, let me tell you about Jesus who I believe in, and you've got all excited by, and you've, you've been bold for the first time ever, and then suddenly you find yourself kind of excluded from a group of friends, or you find yourself being bad-mouthed on social media, or looked over for a job promotion. I wonder if we'd be like John on the island of Patmos. Or would we say, well, Lord, I stood up for you and I expected you to reward me? You may not put it in those terms. But yet John, despite his location, is still full of adoration for Jesus Christ, his God. And it's also important because God doesn't move in a vacuum. You know, John focuses his mind on Christ despite his situation, his location. And Jesus reveals himself to him. And actually, what if this morning, the situations we find ourselves in, the solution is as simple as seeking Christ with our whole heart? What if we've become the people that look everywhere but Jesus until the thing we're suffering gets so bad that we're so down and depressed by it? So then we come to his revelation of Jesus. And is there a more immense vision of Jesus that you will ever see um, if you've got the, your chapter 1 open, verses 12 to 18, I won't read it again because of time, but you can see the various descriptions of Jesus. We're used to seeing him dressed as a first century Nazarite, uh, Nazarene, aren't we? a first century Israeli. But now this vision of Jesus is just incredible. He's glorified. It's, it's presented as someone of power, deep symbolism. This is who Jesus is forever and ever and ever. Amen. He is still man, but he is fully God, and he was always both those things. So just quickly to go through his revelation, he describes him as one like a son of man. And a lot of what happens in chapter 1 takes us back to the book of Daniel. book of Daniel, he's, uh, Daniel was given this vision of the ancient of days, of God the Father on the throne. And this moment when the son, someone like a son of man, comes, and then he's given dominion and authority. This is fulfilling that. Jesus is that son of man prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, hundreds of years before. And here he is receiving the rule and authority that he is by birthright as God's one and only son. John wants us, or Jesus, I should say, wants us to look backwards to see that this is the fulfillment of all things. This Jesus that you know is king of kings and lord of lords over everything, every throne, every power, every bit of legislation that we may fear. Describes him having a long robe that touches the floor, a priestly robe reminding us of Exodus chapter 28 verse 4. It also describes having a golden sash around his chest, and that's a symbolism of kingship, of royalty. 
This Jesus he's seeing is a royal priest. He's not just the king of kings, but he's the priests of priests, the great high priest. And therefore what he's about to say to his churches is like a royal proclamation because he has the authority to speak directly to his people. He still does. And it is the gravest of sin, actually, when a Christian hears the very voice of God and ignores it. His hair is described uh, in that white color, reminding us that this Jesus has infinite wisdom and divine wisdom, reminding us again of Daniel 7, verse 9, but also Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31, that the hair on the head and the color of it is a sign of wisdom, which is good news as you get older. His eyes are described being eyes of fire, This Jesus that he sees, that he encounters, has perfect vision. Not 20-20 vision, but holy vision. To see even the heart. To see what goes on in quiet shadows. To see what we're all like. He's got feet of bronze, another link back to the book of Daniel. These feet of this Jesus are strong. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when that first sin entered the world and God promises the devil, he will strike your head, you will bite his heel. At this point, we've seen the suffering of Jesus. But in the end of Revelation, we're going to see the power and dominion of Jesus, where evil is stamped out once and for all. Hallelujah. And then we get this wonderful description of the roar of many waters, of the sound of his voice. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24 reminds us that the roaring water sound is the very sound of God. This is a king. This is the priest. This is God, the Son and the son of man. And then we get that image of the sword, reminding again of uh, the servant of God in Isaiah 49 verse two, but also the sword of the spirit in Ephesians six verse 17 and Hebrews chapter four verse 14, that sword, double-edged sword, that is sharp enough to cut between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. What an encounter that must have been for John. Can you just imagine what it must have been like to turn around and see this terrifyingly wonderful vision of Jesus that you knew, Jesus that you worship, and it would have been all he'd ever need to see again the rest of his life. What if this morning that encounter with Christ is closer than you think? What if that vision of Christ, whilst it won't be the same as this, what what if that encounter could be so pronounced, so wonderful, that it'd be the only time, the only thing you'd ever need to see the rest of your life? What if Jesus is literally just next to you and all you need to do is turn and reach out to him? And so John has this encounter with Jesus and what's the purpose of it? Well, I will read verses one to eight and remind you. It says, a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. And then he says, uh, he writes to the churches, grace and peace to you from him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then he says in verse seven, look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. 
The purpose of this book is actually to remind God's church that their king is the victor of all things, that he is coming soon. The purpose of Revelation is to remind them of what's going to come in history and that God will have the final victory. But more than that, it's a challenge to his church as well. There were seven churches mentioned, and actually in the number seven is about completeness in the Bible often, and they represent all churches, us in Strawbridgeworth as well. And there were four threats that the church faced, these seven churches faced. And the first was false teaching. They talk of the Nicolaitans in chapter two coming in and changing the gospel. Churches are a constant threat of outside ideas coming in to water down and change what is written so clearly in the word of God. There's also persecution. Chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 13, there's a threat. There's always the threat of death and opposition to Christians wherever they find themselves. Then there's the last two, perhaps the bigger threats, compromise. There's all that talk of lukewarmness and being spat out. There's so many Christians who compromise what they believe because it's easier. And then finally, spiritual complacency. These are the three, four biggest threats to God's church, not just at the time of writing, but every generation that has existed since. And these are still dangerous to the church today and dangerous to you personally and me personally as well. And the only solution is to encounter Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And so I want to pray just for a minute or two, and then we're going to have to finish, I'm afraid. And I invite you just to shut your eyes. And just think of those four things. Well, think first of all where you are in your life right now. You may not actually be on an island, but you are. But just imagine spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. Do you feel like um, you've stood up, you've stood your ground, and it's all gone horribly wrong, and you're on your own somewhere? Just imagine that's how John felt. Maybe you feel you've been as good as you possibly can and it's all been too difficult and you're ready to give up on Jesus. Well, maybe we've all felt that at times, perhaps. But if you're on that island alone, just remember that you're never alone if you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Think of those temptations, those threats to the church and to her Christians within them. Think of false teaching. What have you allowed yourself to think that you shouldn't have done? That's not in God's word. Have you been attacked for your faith? Have you compromised morally, ethically, theologically? And has there become a a spiritual complacency? It's Jesus number one, honestly. So let me pray. Lord God, as we come to the end of our time, Father, just in this moment, Father, I just want to pray a simple prayer. That you would, that we would encounter you this week in a real way. Father, whether we've made our mind up or not, give us a heart this week to seek you, Father. Not just for a little bit, but every single day. May we, like John, Lord, stop our daily grind and focus on you. Father God, I pray for everybody in this room that they might encounter you in a fresh way this week that you might appear to them, Lord, in any way you see fit, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that every single one of us, Lord, those who have compromised their faith, those who have become complacent and lukewarm, Lord, those who have, have tired of fighting, that, Lord, you would just encourage and bless and challenge, but encounter us, Father, every single one of us. Lord, I pray for this church, that, Lord, all those threats, 
not just individually that we would keep away, as a church, we would fight off as well.